Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons, our interview show. And we've got yet another great, informative show for you today. Some really important stuff. Um, the argument is being made in many cases today about trading off privacy versus security. And oftentimes our government uh, likes to tell us that those two things are in conflict, that we have to choose one over the other. Um, and we're going to talk today with um, Andrew Crocker from the EFF. And uh, we're going to kind of start the conversation off with uh, talk about the iPhone that was found uh, in the presence of the Texas shooter, uh, similar to the San Bernardino case that was a couple of years ago, and talk about the implications of that, how that's going, and then kind of get into some more of the policy issues around that. And of course, bring it back home and talk about what this means to you and what you can do about it. So without further ado, let's go talk with Andrew. Andrew Crocker is a staff attorney at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. He's part of the Civil Liberties team. Uh, and I've asked him to join us today to talk about digital rights, privacy, and the digital age. Welcome, Andrew. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So yeah, today I want to talk about, you know, how ubiquitous smartphones and strong encryption technologies are raising some really important questions about how we balance the right to privacy and the desire for law enforcement to access this treasure trove of, uh, of digital information. Um, and the issue that's recently come to the fore uh, with all this is the mass shooting in Texas. And at that point, there was I don't know, a little over a month ago, I think 26 people were killed by gunmen at the First Baptist Church in Sutherland Springs. Uh, and an iPhone was found at the scene. Now, that guy was uh, the killer was was killed in the I think the pursuit. But nevertheless, uh, law enforcement uh, wanted to unlock that device. And uh, it was an Apple iPhone. They've actually issued a warrant for this. Um, so I was wondering if you could maybe, you know, what else can you tell us about this case? And is this is this basically the same kind of situation we have with the San, San Bernardino iPhone thing back in 2015? So I, I think it's pretty similar. Um, my understanding, and, and I haven't seen a whole lot out in the media about this case, but my understanding is uh, the Texas Rangers are, are the law enforcement agency handling it, um, and they recovered an iPhone SE uh, from the from the the shooter's car after he was killed in the pursuit, like you said, um, and that they served Apple with uh, two search warrants, uh, one for uh, the contents of the phone itself, and then one for um, an iCloud account or po possible iCloud account associated with the phone. Um, and then I, I've also read that Apple offered its technical assistance to uh, maybe to the FBI in an earlier stage of the case in, in trying to unlock the phone. Um, and allegedly the FBI uh, turned that down or didn't respond. Um, and then the other thing was that the Washington Post reported that um, though they didn't accept Apple's help, they did attempt to unlock the phone by using the, the deceased killer's uh, finger to unlock it and that that was unsuccessful. Um, so in a lot of ways, we have a very similar uh, scenario to the San Bernardino case, I think. Uh, we have a a phone recovered um, at the scene of a crime after the um, the you know, people that carried out the crime had been killed. Um, so uh, an interest by law enforcement in getting into the contents of the phone and, and, and learning more about the crime and, and maybe sort of related things. Um, what I think is a little less clear is, is exactly what the, you know, what the state the phone is in, whether it's locked or off or uh, all of that, whether it was encrypted with a passcode or, and, and touch ID or just a passcode or something like that, um, and exactly which version of iOS it's running. But I think in, a, in, the, in the, as a general matter, it is quite similar. Um, what we haven't seen also is a 
actual legal battle over um, the search warrant and the unlocking of the phone that, that to my knowledge, has not taken place in the Texas case. So I, 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 there's a lot of little details that that, that, I'll, that I've picked up about this kind of thing that I think often get either lost in the media or, or it's just too much nuance to make it into, you know, the, the three minute, you know, news clip or whatever. But, you know, Apple... Apple has been, as from everything I've seen, has been, you know, very forthcoming and trying to help in these situations uh, to the point where I, I think they they had held a the press conference shortly after the thing, and I guess Apple immediately at that point when they said there was a phone, why well, not even say an iPhone? They like really immediately reached out, and as you said, and to my knowledge, that they didn't get that no one's gotten back, no one got back to them even on that. Um, and there are things that can be done, like, you know, if it is the touch ID, then supposedly if that phone hasn't been you know locked in the last 48 hours or used, you can use your finger, even a dead finger to unlock the phone. There are other things that Apple can do, you know, and Apple has offered multiple times to give training. It, it seems like Apple's, you know, has, 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 has gone out of their way, actually, in a lot of these cases to, to help here. Is that your impression as well? Yeah. And I think um, one of the tensions that exist after the, the San Bernardino case and, and, and sort of boiled up in the San Bernardino case is uh, exactly how much assistance Apple should provide, is required to provide, you know, um, the, and balancing that against the sort of security features that they built in the phone. And so uh, I agree. I think, they've, I think they've been pretty forthcoming. They have a law enforcement guy. They have um, other materials available to law enforcement to help them understand what they can and can't recover both from phones and, and in other places, their iPod accounts and so on. Uh, in earlier versions of iOS, they were even willing to unlock um, the phones and they stopped doing that and then uh, are basically unable to do so uh, with the, you know, after iOS 8 with the full disk encryption um, being introduced. And so that's a line that they have, have drawn. They, they, they don't want to um, backdoor their product. They don't want to assist as in the in the San Bernardino case, in, in sort of creating custom code to do that or to facilitate doing that, um, and that's a line that they've drawn and, and are willing to do other things. Um, of course, the government in the San Bernardino case portrayed that as a business decision and not actually being helpful. So it, it's a little bit in the eye of the beholder. Um, but I think, from EFS perspective, um, building a strong you know strong security into your products and not being willing to undermine that is a, is a reasonable line to draw. Um, and that they might be willing to do other things that would assist the, the investigation is sort of a separate matter. Right. And, you know, and, and I think, you know, one of the arguments made, you know, there are, you can say what you want about policy and the right to privacy and things. And, that, and obviously those are important. We're going to be talking about those. But uh, I just from a straight up business perspective, some of these companies are put in a very awkward position if, you know, if they say, OK, we'll we will somehow cripple or somehow find a way into these devices you know, who's to say that Well, as soon as they say that China and, and some of these other regimes that we in the U.S. consider to be repressive or bad in some, in some way are going to ask for the exact same privilege. And then, you know, it, it, it's it's a very, very slippery slope. But let me ask you, let me back up a little bit and just kind of take a devil's advocate position on this. So, if you know, if the police can obtain a warrant for a house, right, and expect that, you know, when that warrant is served, that that house is unlocked, it may be locked. But if with a valid warrant from a sign from a judge they hand this over, you know, you've got to kind of unlock the house and, and let them look through the house. Why, why is it different for a digital device that's locked with a password? Well, in a certain sense, it's not different uh, because in both cases, what the warrant authorizes the police law enforcement to do is to try to search. Um, you know, they can, they can try to get into the house. They can try to look for the things that they 
are, are at probable cause to look for. Um, but it doesn't guarantee that they'll be successful. I think in the physical world, we sort of take for granted that the police can get into houses if they want to. They can break down doors and so on. Um, but there are always going to be circumstances where uh, even if it's a lawfully authorized search, even if the Fourth Amendment has been satisfied, uh, law enforcement won't be able to find the things they're looking for. Um, there have always been technologies. We don't think of them as technologies, but technologies that prevent this from happening. You have blinds, you have curtains. Um, just having a private conversation in a place where no one else can hear it in the old days was a way to ensure that um, you know you were in a warrant-proof zone, which is the <laughs> sort of terminology that the, the government has been using in the, in the encryption debate. Um, you know, there have there have always been spaces off limits to law enforcement, practically speaking. Um, and so it's sort of, I think, a red herring to say that uh, we're, we've created these warrant-free zones just with these funds. There's, there's always been that. There, uh, even if you if you look at some of the history of people written about this, there were periods when there were locks that were unpickable. Um, and then, you know, lock-picking technology advanced or someone came up with a new means to, to do so. Um, you know, dynamite <laughs> might get you into a safe, but it might destroy the, the contents of the safe. So there have always, always been this sort of arms race between um, law enforcement and the and you know people who who, have, who use technologies that might put some of this stuff off off the limits, practically speaking. Uh, and the other thing to, to sort of keep in mind is um, technology is always a double-edged sword in the sense that it might be it might make it harder to get access to the contents of a phone, but there, it also creates a lot more information that simply just didn't exist uh, mm -hmm. in the past. So uh, this is why some people on the sort of liberty side have, have pointed to statements about this being the golden age of surveillance. There's so much more. Um, recording of information so much more metadata available to investigators that they can use to build an investigation um, that just didn't exist in the past. And so uh, it, it sort of gives and it takes away in some sense. Um, there's a report out of the Berkman Center at Harvard called Don't Panic, which goes into this and, and says, here are all the ways in which uh, surveillance is not going away. And the last thing to keep in mind, I think, is um, the, the Fourth Amendment is only one of these sort of interests or rights at stake here. Um, there might be other things that protect the rights of um, companies like Apple or individuals to create uh, encrypted encryption and, and software that provides security. And, you know, ADFF, we were very proud of having played a role in uh, getting software First Amendment protection. And there's, as we've argued in the San Bernardino case, a First Amendment right to uh, create this strong encryption. So uh, the, the sort of equivalence between getting into a home where there might not be those other rights at stake um, in the encryption debate, there's all sorts of other protections that, that, that may come into play. Yeah, and you made a passing reference to uh, a recent quote that I wanted to, wanted to bring up because I thought it was, it's the kind of quote that, you know, it feels on its surface to be very compelling. And, it, mm -hmm. and it's, it's something I think that when a lot of people hear this and, and these quotes get a lot of play, that it sounds reasonable. And I'd like to, you know, maybe maybe take a little time to, to, to pick it apart. And that is from um, Deputy Attorney General uh, Rod Rosenstein recently said, and he says, quote, warrant proof encryption defeats the constitutional balance by elevating privacy above public safety. Encrypted communications that cannot be intercepted and locked devices that cannot be opened are law free zones that permit criminals and terrorists to operate without detection by police and without account accountability by judges and juries, unquote. So I know you've already kind of addressed that a little bit, but that that's that's a very, very emotional argument that it's a, it, it evokes a lot of, you know, I think a lot of reasonable people would hear that and think, oh, yeah, that, that doesn't make sense. We, we really shouldn't have that. Uh, I know you've addressed this a little bit already, but it, 
how how would you counter that if if someone just heard that and say yeah that sounds reasonable what would you tell them well i think there are a couple of responses one is um just as a technical matter is what you know to the extent that that the deputy attorney general is asking for anything in particular asking companies to do something in particular is what he's asking for feasible um you know is it possible to create strong encryption or responsible encryption is the sort of newest branding that, mm-hmm. that he's put on it. Um, that is both provides the level of, of protection that we all want for our devices, that we want our, our devices to be secure against hackers and, and other bad actors, but is also not a so-called law-free zone so that, so that when the government goes and gets a warrant, uh, they, they are able to access the uh, contents of, of those devices um, in a regular manner, in a way that's authorized by a court, and so on and so on. And the, the brightest minds that we have um, say that that's not feasible. Uh, there's a the paper that gets cited a lot from 2015 called Keys Under Doormats by a series of uh, sort of the luminaries of, of cryptography and computer science, um, going into all the reasons why building such a system is really, really hard and why it's really, really likely to fail in ways that we, that we don't want, that, um, you know, you'll have keys leaked to, to non-authorized parties or you'll or you'll have flaws in the implementation or and so on and so forth. So as a technical matter, I just don't think that it is a reasonable thing to ask for um, that companies make this balance and, and say, on the one hand, we provide strong encryption, but we also make it accessible to law enforcement. Um, and it's notable, of course, that in this most recent uh, series of, of battles about the crypto wars, people are calling this crypto wars 2.0. Uh, the government and, and people sort of on, on the deputy attorney general's side really haven't made any concrete proposals because um, in the past when they have, they've been shot down by, by the technically minded folks who, who wrote this paper. Um, just, there hasn't been a solution technically. Um, and then on the, on the sort of more policy side of things, um, we've always had to balance um, law enforcement's need to get access to information against other values, privacy, and, and so on, um, the sort of Fourth Amendment balance that we were talking about before. Um, and though it is, of course, extremely compelling to say we want to be able to get access to these devices to do our investigations, um, you know, to catch the bad guys, we've never as a society said that that is the only important value. We have always recognized that there are there are other things on, on the other side. So. Um, I don't think that providing strong encryption, which has the unwanted side, you know, byproduct of um, walling these devices off, is, is is so out of the norm. I mean, that that's always been that we've always recognized things that will stand in the way of law enforcement. And I don't think anyone or, or few people have accused Apple or, or others that that create these products of actually intending to make them law-free zones. It's it's just a byproduct of uh, the way the encryption works. Yeah, and I and I think what a lot of people just miss is that that you know strong encryption is used all over the place for extremely valuable purposes, not just privacy but security. I mean, if you know if you want to those great little apps you've got on your phone where you can deposit checks by scanning them or check your balance and move things around, none of that stuff is possible. You know, doing paying your bills online or you know viewing your patient portal from your doctor and reviewing sensitive material, none of that stuff could happen without encryption. At least that it couldn't happen well. <laughs> yeah, absolutely right. And and one of the one of the other red herrings that that the deputy attorney general has has done and and I've uh, others in the FBI, the new director of Christopher Ray, I think has used this example too, is pointing to specific kinds of uh, secure applications. So, you know, communicating between a webmail server and your and your client where there's encryption in transit and saying, well, if we can do that, uh, then we can then we can find a way for end-to-end encryption to be uh, accessible to law enforcement too. The point 
the, the problem being, of course, that those are just different applications. And so, um, you know, assuming that you can provide a solution for for all of these things when in an in an end-to-end model or in a you know full disk encryption model only the only the you know sort of intended recipients hold the keys um and sort of conflating those two things is a real problem from a technical standpoint the other the other point that i've often heard made that i that, that rings uh, uh rings with me is you can't make a door that only good people can pass through Right. So, so, you know, when this argument that, you know, oh, you know, we'll, we'll only make this, this backdoor side door, they keep coming up with these different euphemisms because no one likes the idea of backdoor, right? So the, 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 the special ways, whatever they may be, these highly technical, really smart people get together and find a way that only law enforcement could get in there doesn't really work. For, and for one thing, it, you know, again, put aside whatever you may think, you know, about, you know, the government and maybe the, our government being intrusive, but there's other governments as well you need to consider or hackers for that matter. And the other, the other issue is you can't keep these things secret. So unlike, you know, encryption algorithms, if they're done well, are, are public. The only thing that's private is the the key that locks everything. And so they could be vetted and whatever. But if, um, if there's a flaw built in and that gets out, it's game over for everybody. Not, you know, not just, terrorists trying to communicate but you trying to talk to your bank and all these other things we've talked about because it's it would be a fundamental built-in flaw i mean look at the nsa they can't even keep track of their own tools right that's exactly right i mean these these highly skilled and and you know sophisticated organizations like the nsa and others whose job it is to keep keep control of these things still routinely lose track of information you know things are leaked and and these are the these are the problems that are inherent in any system to provide law enforcement access to encrypted communications um, that that you know the authors of that paper that I was discussing mentioned and and all of these things are exacerbated by the scale at which we need them to operate right we we're not talking about just a few keys or just a few devices or you know certain small amounts of data we're talking about the you know, billions of people that use phones, the billions of people communicating on the internet, it has to function at scale. The internet, you know, is a global ph- phenomenon and technology is, is truly distributed globally at this point. Um, and that, that creates intense headaches for actually making this secure and work as intended. Now you made a passing reference to crypto wars as well. And I wanted to t- touch on that because I, I'll bet a lot of people aren't aware or maybe don't remember it. I maybe didn't get the precedent back then. I, cause I, I grew up this area and I don't recall this happening other than some news stories about this thing called a clipper chip or whatever. But, um, there was this time in the nineties that we went through this kind of the same debate. Um, and it was called is in retrospect, we called the crypto wars. So we've been through this before. Can you tell an EFF actually was back then was, was involved in that as well. Can you cut, can you kind of catch us up on what that was about and how that's similar to what we're doing now and why we haven't learned anything in, in the intervening time. So, it was quite similar in the sense there was a, a a push by government to get access to encrypted communications and to restrict the use of encryption um, in terms of exporting it to other countries and and also with the Clipper chip to be able to get access to communications internally. Uh, EFS role was was in part to uh, bring a bring a lawsuit that established First Amendment protections for uh, for software for the writing of. of uh, an encryption algorithm, um, and it really, I guess it's, it's the quickest way to describe it is it ended in a stalemate where where a lot of the more invasive proposals um, were withdrawn. Clipper chip was not, you know, did not become a standard, um, and so there was a sense that we had won, you know, our, the the civil liberties community had won the crypto wars. Um, so the question of what, you know, what's new here? There not a whole lot in terms of. Um, 
you know, the, the very, very similar arguments are being made um, by, by law enforcement, by government. Um, a lot of the same concerns are being uh, brought out again about terrorism and, and crime that you were discussing earlier. Um, I think what's changed, I think a couple of things have changed. One is um, the, the role of technology in our lives uh, is, is far more central. So, um, you know, I don't think even 20 years ago, people could have envisioned how central to our lives smartphones have become and how much information is on them and therefore how, um, you know, how much information is, is, is useful to law enforcement or intelligence communities that will be, um, you know, passing through devices being encrypted sometimes and so on. Um, and then we've also sort of for the same reasons seen some very hard cases, some very compelling cases where um, law enforcement or government has said we need access to these communications to solve the crime, to, you know, connect the dots and so on. Um, and so, you know, we're the, the first crypto wars happened really before 9-11. Um, and we're living in a in an age of war on terror and 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 so on that um, I think ups the stakes considerably and and makes the case as you as you put it earlier very compelling when when the deputy attorney general makes it that we need access to these communications. Um, so I think I really think that's why we're having this debate again. Uh, there really is nothing fundamentally new about it. Well, and and what kind of got me into this into this business personally is, was the Edward Snowden revelations that came out back in 2013. And, uh, one of the things that really struck me about a lot of that, th a lot of that stuff and that a little document I read recently from the EFA about some of these, th some of the programs there were, is that the NSA kind of in light of all these things that, in, and, and maybe after the crypto wars have been litigated in public appears to have gone, you know, basically around the law or behind the law or whatever, and kind of, did their own thing, like with the with the bull run program in particular, for example. And this is something that the EFF was talking about. For instance, uh, according to the EFF, the NSA inserted hidden vulnerabilities into our security standards, resulting in the NIST, the uh, National Institute of Standards of Technology, withdrawing support for you know from a key security standard because basically the NSA had kind of put their thumb on the scales and said, "Oh, you should you should use this crypto standard," when they knew full and well that that was a weak standard. Um, you know, so that's where that's to me where it kind of gets scary. It's one thing where we, when we debate these things out in the open and we can, you know, lobby our litigators and we can lobby our government and, and law enforcement agencies and whatever. But this that seems like an end run to me, it's, uh, not to make a pun, but yeah, <laughs> um, yeah it certainly is. And, and um, you know, we what once we learned about that, we we're very concerned about it, too. And, and it's one of the things that I think isn't lurking in the background of the Apple case last year and, and anything further is um, the knowledge that some of this could be happening in secret, um, you know, in a, in a foreign intelligence surveillance court or another, um, you know, by other mechanisms that the public wouldn't learn about. Uh, the FBI and the DOJ could have chosen to litigate the San Bernardino case in secret. And we as the public would have had far less input um, into a case that ended up being uh, largely swayed by public opinion, I think. So it is it is very important that we try to, um, you know, know about these things, bring them into the open as, as, as much as possible, and to sort of not have that suspicion of our um, the, the products that we rely on being compromised in some way. Um, and that, in fact, informs this debate quite a bit. We haven't touched on this so much, but um, one of the things that that can really go wrong in a system like this that the you know deputy attorney general is talking about is undermining trust in devices and software um, such that people don't take basic security precautions you know if you require apple to update its software in a malicious way that begins to undermine trust in the in the sort of security ecosystem that 
where software updates are so necessary to protect against flaws that have been discovered and so on. Um, and so if you're undermining people's trust in, in security, you're really maybe actually causing even bigger problems that that are, you know, unaddressed by, by this sort of lawful scheme as being described. Right. So let's bring this back home a little bit and get a little more practical, maybe for the audience. We've got a little sure. esoteric. So um, I, I've got some specific questions that, that kind of came up from the Apple thing and some other things I've read in regard to iPhone security and whatever. So, mm -hmm. for example, I've heard it said um, that your fingerprint can be compelled by law enforcement. It's something you are. It's like DNA or a blood sample or a hair sample or whatever. Uh, but a password or a pin, something you know, uh, cannot be compelled because it falls under your Fifth Amendment right against testimony against yourself or self-incrimination or revealing something you know, I guess, somehow. Under the, is that is that correct? So basically, yes. Um, just quickly, the Fifth Amendment protects against compelled incriminating testimony. Um, and testimony is, is something that requires you to use the contents of your mind, to reveal the contents of your mind. Um, but it's not just verbal testimony. It's by word or by deed, as uh, I think... Um, one of the Justice Supreme Court said it. Uh, on the other, on the other side of the ledger, mere physical acts are not protected. So, um, you know, being forced to read uh, a voice, you know, to give an exemplar of your voice or DNA or blood sample, as you mentioned, um, that's not generally protected. However, an act of production that implicitly sort of communicates something about the contents of your mind um, is protected because it's testimonial in that sense. Um, so that's why putting in a passcode is protected. It's testimonial. It, it reveals the contents of your mind, knowledge of the passcode. Um, we at EFF have actually argued that decrypting a device um, is not just testimonial for that reason, but it's inherently testimonial to translate the encrypted information to um, you know, plain text or, or whatever. Um, nevertheless, there is that protection. So on fingerprints, the, the sort of assumption by the government and, and as some courts have have agreed um, there wouldn't be wouldn't be protection because of the sort of older case law that you know being forced to give this physical sample or, or do something is not um, an incriminating testimonial act protected by the Fifth Amendment. Uh, in 2014, there was a Virginia case that that allowed the government to get um, an order to do this fingerprint unlocking. Uh, but just this year, uh, a court in uh, Chicago, a federal court in Chicago. Um, argued that, that that's not right and distinguished those old cases and said that the, the purpose for which you're giving the fingerprint matters. So in the old days, if you're just giving a fingerprint for, you know, to locate you at a crime scene or something, that's very different than using your fingerprint to unlock a phone and, and to mm -hmm. reveal all of the intimate details of that phone and said um, that actually would raise the uh, Fifth Amendment, Fifth Amendment um, concerns. And so... To some extent, this is actually a, an unsettled area of law. I think, um, you know, I, I think that the majority of courts probably so far have said that um, giving the fingerprint is not protected, but but it's not um, it's not totally settled. Interesting. So I guess the practical the practical upshot of that would be, if for some reason you're a journalist or just a privacy nut or whatever, and and, and you wanted to protect your phone, you uh, you could. Uh, you might want to use a pin instead of fingerprint or actually, actually iOS 11 for Apple, I think in particular has a new lockout feature where I think you hit the power button five times or something and it goes to immediately requiring a pin over the fingerprint. Right. I think it's safe to say that, that using a passcode is a, um, you know, is, is, will, will receive protection, um, and is, is, is a safer, a safer way to go. Um, and, and 
you know, you can use that hybrid feature where you use a passcode some of the, or use a fingerprint some of the time and then, um, you know, lock, lock, lock everyone else out with the, you know, five taps, um, emergency mode, I think they call it. Um, and as you I think, mentioned earlier in, in the show, um, iOS in particular, after 48 hours requires a passcode, it requires a passcode after a certain number of failed attempts and so on. So these are all features to um, sort of fail back to the higher level of security that the passcode provides. And not just against, of course, um, the police compelling it, but just that um, the, the, there's a, just a higher level of security from a passcode than from a uh, biometric like a fingerprint. Right. Like, for instance, if you see somebody, you know, you might get mugged or whatever, you think your phone might get stolen, you might do this so that if they took the phone, they can't, you know, use your unconscious finger to unlock the phone versus... Exactly. So a couple of questions about the, the case itself, and these are just from a legal standpoint, I figured you might know, and I was just curious. So for one thing, just a basic question. So the guy was killed. So the killer was killed. What's the point of actually trying to convict him now? Why Why do they even care what's on his phone? They know the guy did it. They know the guy's dead. What's, what is left to be done that they care about the contents of this guy's phone? Well, I don't think they're trying to convict him, um, but it's... It is a good question in the sense of what's what did the investigators hope to learn by by getting on the phone. If you look at the warrant uh, that was published in, in the local paper, I think um, some of the things that they mention are sort of investigating means and motive. Um, you know, just maybe that maybe the killer documented the crime in some way, um, potentially looking at accomplices and so on. That was that was certainly the argument they made in the San Bernardino case. Uh, I think this is not a particularly good case for um, the real need of getting into the phone. I mean, I'm sure it's always helpful to have any information and uh, even information that rules things out and so on. Um, but I, I don't think this would be the case where the, where the government would really have a strong argument that they need to get into the phone ag- against everything else uh, in order to close the case or, or certainly not to make a conviction because he's dead. Um, so, you know, I, it, it has obviously investigatory value to them, but but I don't see it as being this pressing need. But they did somehow manage to convince a judge they needed, right? So some, so they did manage to convince a judge that there was some value in opening this phone. I guess the judge could have refused on those grounds. Why, why, why do well, you need Well, yes, except that, you know, they're, they can get a search warrant um, if they have a probable cause to believe they'll find evidence for crime. That doesn't necessarily mean they're going to then use that to mm. convict anyone or, or something else. So uh, I don't think there's anything particularly unusual about, about getting a search warrant in that, in that case, um, because it, uh, because as I say, it has investigatory value. Um, you know, it doesn't, so therefore his, his, his rights for, to object are, are extinguished right? because he's dead. He doesn't have fourth or fifth amendment, uh, rights like we've been talking about. Uh, the issue in the Apple case in San Bernardino, and, and I would imagine it'd be very similar in this case if it actually went to court, are maybe Apple has objections to doing this, um, to being forced to cooperate or, or provide technical assistance. And there might be a, a whole range of things that they would object to on statutory and on uh, constitutional grounds, First Amendment arguments, um, in particular, that EFF has, has made in the, in the San Bernardino case. So all of those could be live issues, just not his rights personally. Because he's dead? I mean, <laughs> yes, do you yeah. still have Fourth and Fifth Amendment rights? Do they even apply to, a, to, to someone who's dead? I mean, I, as a creative lawyer, I'm, you know, I could probably try to think of some things, but um, generally, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the other thing about our phones today is I think you could argue, you could make the argument that, that the amount of data on a phone or, or the amount of things that are accessible by the phone that's stored in the cloud, and you've got apps that talk to the cloud, 
is just phenomenal. I mean, you could probably, you know, if you, most of your secrets are probably somehow accessible through your phone. So, um, you know, when, when, when you make search words for a house or whatever, or for a car or maybe a storage locker, they're focused. Like, they, you know, it's like, it has to be a certain, has to be a certain area. In fact, I've even recalls, you know, hearing these legal stories of, you know, you could search this guy's house, but you can only search the second floor. And if the guy walks by something that the classic case, I think was he walked by a piece of stolen equipment, right. And, and then some other room that wasn't covered by the warrant and it was inadmissible because he wasn't, you know, even though he saw it, even though it was stolen or Mark's going, he, he, I, that that evidence was inadmissible because you had to search somewhere else. Is there any technical way to cordon off areas of a phone? I mean, you know, how do you limit, how, how do you effectively limit what you can search on somebody's phone with a warrant or can you? Yeah, this is a, this is a great question. And it's, it's really a, a, to my mind, a cutting, cutting edge one in the law. I mean, you might think that we would have figured this out by now, but we haven't. Um, and it's really being fought out in the courts as we speak. Um, you're, you're very, you're, you're, you're totally right that in the, in the real world, um, there are pretty strict rules about, about warrants. And, and not only do they, the police need probable cause, they need to state with particularity places and persons to be searched and seized. Um, and so it's, it's, you know, you can't search um, one apartment in an apartment building if you've gotten a warrant for the other one, for instance. Uh, you can't look in a desk drawer if you're searching for a stolen refrigerator. These are, you know, these are the ex examples that you see in the in case law. Um, and that, and that sort of scenario that you mentioned where, with the stolen equipment in another room, uh, there is this doctrine called plain view. So if you are as an officer are, are legally in the, in a place, uh, lawfully present in a place, and then you see something that is illegal, you have the, you are authorized to seize it. If it's illegal nature is immediately apparent, but that's a very, um, it's a very narrow uh, window. There's a, there's a case where police saw stolen um, stereo equipment, but they lifted it up to look at the serial number on the mm. equipment, and that was too much. They couldn't lift it up to look at the serial number. So it's you really have it really has to be uh, lawfully in the place, and it has to be immediately apparent. So immediately apparent doesn't include making sure that it's the kind of equipment that you thought it was or whatever. Um, so those are the rules in, in the in the physical world, but. Porting those over to the digital world has has proven difficult for courts and has proven difficult in terms of um, making those those lines that you were that you were talking about. Um, the Supreme Court has said 20, in twenty fifteen you need a, you need a search warrant to search a phone, so that's good. We know they need a warrant, but what about you know parts of it and, and so on? In terms of searching devices, uh, the the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals had a case uh, several years ago. That's that's the circuit that covers California and the, and the western states of the United States. Um, where they were looking at the seizure of um, drug testing files and from major league baseball players. And the investigators in that case uh, went too far. They took too many of the uh, drug testing files and they searched for information about players they weren't authorized to search for by the search warrants. Uh, in that case, I think they looked for Barry Bonds when he wasn't on the, yeah. you know, wasn't, wasn't part of the investigation. And um, these were computerized files in part. And the, um, the Ninth Circuit, the, the Court of Appeals, had a big problem with that. They, they, they raised this issue that you're raising, which is how do we make sure that we limit these searches of devices to the things that you know, are stated with particularity in, in the search warrants and not, not everything else? And the real, the real problem there is that, um, unlike in the real world where you might have a filing cabinet, you can search through the filing cabinet, pick out the files that you want, you know you're sort of authorized to take A through B and not C through Z, uh, files on computers t don't tend to be that way. People hide um, 
things in, in places that you wouldn't expect them to be. They're not necessarily labeled in, in a way that's um, super accessible. And of course, there's so many of them. They're the vast storage capacity of, of modern computers is such that um, it's not it's just not practical to search through them quickly and figure out what you're authorized to take. Um, so you need ways of making sure that these searches authorized by warrants, which are you know particularized searches, don't become general searches, which is the whole reason we have the Fourth Amendment. Not allowed, you know, the government is not allowed to just rifle through everyone's homes and, and papers and effects and, and take what they want. They have to be authorized by, by a, a valid search warrant. Um, and so initially the court tried to put, in, put some rules in place. Um, one of them was to just say that that idea of plain view, that idea that if you were um, lawfully in the place and you see something else that's illegal, you can take it. They said, well, that just doesn't make sense in the digital world because there's not really this this clear idea of where you're authorized to be, and, and it just doesn't doesn't work very well. They also talked about having a third party um, do the searching, so the police don't do it, which would, you know, theoretically mm. um, sort of reduce the police the incentive of the person doing it to to go elsewhere and you know rummage around. And similarly, to use a search protocol that is designed in advance to turn up the you know, specific things that they've been authorized to find rather than, than again, rummaging around. Um, so those, those were some really sensible rules that the Ninth Circuit put in place. Um, they got scared away from it, basically. The, the um, U.S. attorneys from, from the districts in, in, that, in, the, in that circuit came and said, this is going to make um, having search warrants impossible or just, it's going to grind to a halt. Mm. And so they took, they took that recommendation, those, those, um, those rules that I was talking about, and they made them uh, a concurrence. So they're not legally binding. Um, so that the government doesn't have to do this in all cases. Nevertheless, there are certain cases where it makes sense and, and judges are, are um, authorized or you know, empowered to impose those kinds of limitations whenever they, um, whenever they issue a search warrant. So part of what EFF has been doing in a lot of these different cases is saying, you know, these rules make a lot of sense. They really are, um, this really is a problem in, in basically any case of a device. Um, and, so, and it should be mandatory that the, you know, first warrants of plain view and so on should be required in all cases. Um, I think in some sense, device searches are, are a little harder than cloud searches because in cloud searches, you have uh, an intermediating force of the provider, whether it's Facebook or Google, you know, depending if you have a warrant to get the contents of a, a Gmail account, Google has to provide that to the, to the police. They don't you know, go to Google's headquarters and, and search the computers themselves, right? Um, and it's not that those third-party providers like Google, Facebook, are in all cases going to do this, but um, they, in practice, look at search warrants very carefully and they push back on ones that um, seem to be overbroad in some way. And that's something that EFF has, has spent a number of years uh, pushing them, doing and, and encouraging them to adopt best practices here. Um, and so we've seen this where, you know, the government gets either just a, a warrant that on its face is is way overbroad. So, you know, they're investing in a crime that took place in 2017, but they say, give us the entire contents of this account, and the account was opened in 20, 2007. Well, they right. don't need 10 years of email, and, and Google is in a good position to say, no, uh, you need to limit this in some way. Um, and, and so there have been a number of courts that have agreed with that, you know, saying that in all cases you need a, a date limit uh, when you want to get the contents of an account. And very recently we saw the um, web hosting provider DreamHost Right. Uh, was was asked to turn over um, contents of uh, the disruptj20.org website, which was organized around the 
inauguration events earlier this year, and um, a number of people were arrested on the ground protesting the inauguration. Um, and initially, the, the government wanted just every communication that had passed through that site that DreamHost had had in its possession. DreamHost fought a, a sort of extended court battle to get that narrowed, and um, you know, really protect the sort of First Amendment rights to protest that were at issue in that case. So I think we've made some more progress on cloud searches. Really, device searches are, uh, are still up in the air, as I said, being being fought out in the courts. Yeah, sure. For sure. One of the points I was making about the device, however, is because it's your portal to the cloud, if they have the access to the device, they could pull down. They right. don't need to talk to Google. They don't need to talk to Facebook or you know, they can just, they've got access. In particular, for example, I've got a, a ProtonMail account and a ProtonMail is encrypted end to end. You could go serve a warrant to ProtonMail all day long and they, and they can't provide the info. But if they had my device, that is where the, the, the content is decrypted. They could get it there. Um, yeah, that's actually that's absolutely right, and that's one of the things the Supreme Court uh, mentioned in its case, saying you need a warrant to um, get get access to a smartphone. Is is the fact that they're tethered to the cloud and can pull down so much data? Um, unfortunately, as so, is so often the case, they just didn't provide all the guidance that we would like on that, which is how to you know how to draw those lines once you've gotten the warrant. The other weird part about smartphones and, and that it makes a difference so so different from the physical world. And we talked with Adam Schwartz from EFF about this back in March with the border at the U.S. border. Even U.S. citizens have very there are very different rules about what they can and can't do as far as compelling you to give over the phones. But one of the things that came from that discussion that I uh, recall was they take you know if you if you go in there and you decide that I'm not going to protest this. Okay, there's nothing on my phone I care about. I'm going to let the I'm going to let them take my phone back in the back room, which they they can do. They could take it in the back room. They could potentially copy the whole phone and just bring it back to you. And you can't really do that with a house, right? You go in, you search, you leave. Um, whereas with a phone, you could actually just snapshot the whole thing. And, you know, you could keep that around forever until you wanted to come back to this guy, you know, and, and rummage through that stuff again looking for something else. Yeah, I mean, this is this is this sort of recognition that it's um, just qualitatively different than searching a physical space is what led the Supreme Court to, to make this big ruling in, in 2015. Um, and it's it's encouraging and sort of for EFF's work to kind of use these arguments moving forward to say, uh, this really isn't the same thing. You don't, you know, you otherwise would not carry around this amount of data with you. Um, it allows us to give also sort of practical advice that maybe when you're crossing the border, not to carry so much of it with you and, you know, use a different phone or, or not carry, um, the full contents of an account or so on. Um, but it, it really is problematic that, that they can then, you know, make a copy of it, if, assuming they get access to it, make a copy of it and retain it for a very long period of time. All right. So let's bring this a little bit to a close. So from a practical standpoint, what, what is EFF's recommend, you know, rec recommendations to the average Joe? So if you're, what can you tell my audience about, you know, what they should do kind of in general to protect themselves and, you know, what kind of rights in general they have, like, you know, if they're pulled over for a traffic violation and for whatever reason, the officer says, you know, give me your phone and unlock it. Or, you know, what, what can people do? What kind of, obviously, you know, you kind of, I think the first thing you probably need to do is you need to decide probably well ahead of time, you know, when this happens, am I going to make some sort of a principled stand or not? Because that's really what it comes down to. Right. But if, you know, what, how, what would you recommend to people uh, as a practical advice for either and protecting themselves or what to do in these situations? So you, you can always invoke the right to remain silent and ask to speak to an attorney. And that's always going to be a good idea. It's always a good idea to have an attorney that you can talk things over with. I recognize that in the moment, um, you're not going to have 
you know, unless you're traveling with your attorney, you're not going to be able to do that. <laughs> um, so you can always re- invoke the remote to main silent. You can ask to speak to your attorney, but that of course means that the um, police can detain you, pressure you. Um, you know, they might might very well seize your phone if you refuse to unlock it. And so these are the sorts of choices that you have to make, as you said, um, preferably in advance. Um, it's it's hard to give really particularized advice beyond that that sort of thing. But um, fortunately, we have spend some time writing up guides that we sort of make these these questions clearer so you can think them through and, and sort of know your, your rights and also the risks, um, you know, the risks of detention or having devices. So we have two separate guides that I would direct people to. We have a surveillance self-defense guide, uh, ssd.eff.org, uh, and that goes through a lot of a lot of these scenarios, also sort of um, configurations that you can use for your various uh, devices to make them more secure. The other one that I would point people to is our border search guide, because as you mentioned, the, the, the rules are just different at the border, and so the advice and the considerations are going to be very different, um, and, and that's on our website as well. So you can read through those, sort of think through your risk profile, what you want to take with you all the time, what you might want to take with you when traveling, um, and so therefore you can make those decisions in a more informed way. So... Uh, to wrap this up, I always like to give the audience, you know, something to do. So something, you know, if they, if we've convinced them, if we've kind of, you know, lit a fire under, under, under them that thinks, oh yeah, I, you know, I believe in these things. These things are important. I want to, you know, maybe get actively involved. Um, you know, so kind of generally speaking before, as a last question, it, it certainly seems that this administration I'd have to guess is more, more in favor of these back doors and and less privacy and supposedly in favor of more security you know I'd, I'd argue that those are not mutually exclusive but they don't um so it what kind of issues are currently in, in front of congress or um what sort of things are is, is eff doing right now that might be um that the audience might want to get out there and contact their representatives about or learn more about um mm-hmm. what's going on right now that the people should know that's going on and maybe get involved with so we've we've talked a lot about uh, the deputy attorney general giving speeches and saying responsible encryption is um, something that we need, and so to the extent that that people want to speak out about that and say that you know, that's a false choice, um, very much welcome that help. There is not a, a ton in Congress this session that is uh, directly on on topic here. There was a, a bill in the previous Congress uh, or. A proposal in the previous Congress, the Burr-Feinstein bill, which would have really undermined encryption across the board. Um, we haven't seen anything like that yet, but you can sort of rest assured that EFF would be, um, you know, shouting about it immediately. One one thing that's that's currently active that people can certainly contact their representatives about is um, there's Section 702 of the FISA mm-hmm. Amendments Act, which is the uh, bill that, that authorizes the sort of warrantless surveillance of the internet the collection of, of internet communications by the NSA and then searching by FBI and other agencies. Um, one of the provisions in that, in that law allows uh, the government to demand that providers um, give technical assistance, information facilities help of the kind potentially that was at issue in the Apple case. Um, and we at EFF have been trying to, to make sure that they don't do that in secret we talked about this earlier, um, and what we've what we've really learned is that they could do it in secret without even the uh, oversight of the of the FISA court, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. Um, and there's a proposal by, uh, introduced by Senator Wyden as part of the USA Rights Act in this 702 fight that would impose requirements on the government before they could do that to show that they actually needed it, and they would actually have to go to the, the FISA court to get that kind of sign off. Um, 
And and so that's a that's an active proposal that people can can contact their representative and say we support the one bill um, that would you know that would put these limits on, on providing technical assistance and potentially undermining encryption in secret in secret in the secret court. Um, so that's at least one thing that you that you can do right now. And that's coming to a head like right now, right? That, that, that there's a sunset provision on that yep. thing that's supposed to end this year, right? That's right. We've got a couple more weeks, um, and you know, it's really anybody's guess how that's going to play out right now. Um, so it is a good time to to make your voice heard. Well, I'll say one more thing that uh, you may have been too uh, too humble to to ask for, but donate to the EFF. These guys are doing some <laughs> doing amazing work, and uh, you know, if you, if you can't get out there and do it yourself, pay somebody else to do it for you. And these guys are some of the best. So, you know, I'll take one of my other opportunities that I always bring up to to send these guys a little money, or you know, or find Epic. There are other groups as well that are out there fighting for you every day, and uh, they're doing really good work. So. Uh, Andrew, thank you so much for coming on to talk about this. This stuff is extremely important and you know, fundamental to democracy. It doesn't get much more important. So thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for having me. I want to thank Andrew Crocker one more time for coming back. And the EFF in general, these guys have been really great about uh, granting interviews. And of course, I really like these guys. I'm, I'm a fanboy, I admit it. Um, I've, I've long been a member and these guys are really doing some fantastic work. So again, uh, if you like what these guys are doing or you know, don't have time to necessarily get out there and protest these things on your own or, you know, call and write your congressman all the time. You should do it as much as you can. Uh, but if you if you can't get out there and do these things yourselves, pay someone else to do it for you. Uh, and you, it's hard. You'd be hard pressed to find a better organization uh, than the EFF. So uh, look on the show notes. We'll, there'll be links uh, for how to go and donate to these guys. Seriously, consider giving these guys some money every year. Uh, they're doing some fantastic work. Uh, and if you'd like to help uh, me to help you to help others, you can also go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. You can search on firewalls, don't stop dragons. Uh, there's information there that, uh, you can read about that you can help me in all the various endeavors I've got to try to educate everybody about all these issues, because the more, the more people know this stuff, the, the safer we all are. So, uh, thank you for doing that. So until next time, don't get caught with the drawbridge down. Stay safe out there, folks. Take care.